Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are constantly intervening in our lives in ways that we don't even know. That we live in your grace, both the things we recognize and the things we don't. And uh, as we turn our attention to a story of your grace, I pray, Heavenly Father, that you would make us such aware, so aware of your mercies. With truly thankful hearts, we would sing your praise. We would live for you, not only with our lips, but with our lives. And may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. We are continuing our journey through the book of Daniel on Sunday mornings, and we have come to the sixth chapter and the third king in the book, Darius the Mede. Already we've met Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar. They were both kings of Babylon. But Darius is their successor. And in the revolving door of power in the ancient Near Eastern world, Media, what we today call Iran, took over after Babylon. And Darius was the king of the Medes. Six chapters in, and we are already on our third king. But the one constant across chapters and kingdoms alike in this book has been Daniel. He is there in chapter 1 with Nebuchadnezzar, and he is here in chapter 6 with Darius the Mede. It's Daniel who is the focal point of our story this morning. In the stories about Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar, Daniel and his friends were the instruments that God used to get at those kings. They were the focal point. But here the seats have been shuffled and the pagan king is now the, the instrument that is used in order to try Daniel. In this story, Darius, the king, is pro-Daniel. In fact, he's so pleased with Daniel that he plans to promote him to the most powerful position in his kingdom. Darius even respects Daniel's God, calling him the living God in verse 20. It's also Darius who throws Daniel to the lions, though and seals the opening with his signet ring. Uh, but he did this re reluctantly. He was tricked into it. He was not angry with Daniel, nor did he want him dead. While Daniel was in the lion's den, Darius was on his knees fasting and praying for Daniel's life. And at the first sign of daylight, the sleepless king ran to the den, and the text tells us that he cried out anxiously to find out whether Daniel was still alive or not. Darius obviously loved Daniel, and he's used quite cruelly in order to put Daniel to the test. Darius is an instrument for those of those who opposed Daniel. He plays a passive role in this story, because unlike Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar, Darius is not the focus of this story. Daniel is. And with Darius playing a passive role, the attention shifts to Daniel, Daniel is the person we're intended to follow closely and even see ourselves in. But the thing about Daniel is that he's not a very relatable character. He's too perfect. And therefore he seems out of our reach. He succeeds in everything he does, always saying and doing the right thing. Almost like his faithfulness is programmed into him. And take, for instance, his response to Belshazzar's offer of gifts in exchange for a favor in chapter 5. Daniel says, let your gifts be for yourself or give your rewards to someone else. You can't buy me, he tells Belshazzar. What I have to give you, I give to you for free. 
It's equal parts defiance and toughness mixed with love and grace. A cocktail that we fail to mix properly almost every day. And in our story today, we see Daniel again acting with almost automatic faithfulness. Darius unwittingly signed a law into effect that would have, had, would have had Daniel fed to lions if he prayed, as was his custom to do three times a day. In verse 10, we are told that although Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he continued to go to his house, which had windows in its upper room open toward Jerusalem, and to get down on his knees three times a day to pray to his God and praise him just as he had done previously. The law which guaranteed his death did not affect his routine of prayer. He prayed just as he had done previously. He did not pray in secret now, but continued to pray in front of open windows in his house three times a day. He hid nothing and defiantly went on his way. It's exactly as a Christian should act. And Daniel, of course, did it without hesitation or compromise. We have no note of anxiety, no note of fear in his voice. He's perfect, the perfect character. Not only did he do things he ought to do, but he did not do the things that he ought not to do. There's nothing that Daniel does in this book that the text frowns upon. There's no sin that's even subtly alluded to. Daniel is portrayed as this perfectly righteous person. In fact, spoiler alert, when Daniel is not eaten by the lions... The reason he gives for his salvation is the fact that he is blameless. Verse 22, Daniel explains to the anxious, anxious Darius, My God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouth so that they would not hurt me because I was found blameless before him. And also before you, O king, I've done no wrong. He's blameless on every page of this book. And therefore it's, it's difficult for, for those of us who, who sin against God almost daily, and against each other every day, to relate to him. But he's the focus point. And therefore, the, the calls to, to be like Daniel, right? to hold him out as this, this moral character that you should follow, those calls to be like Daniel, which are typically heard in, in sermons about this blameless man, feel unrealistic and, and hopeless to us. Because Daniel's perfection is not taken into account when those calls are made. Demanding that Christians be like Daniel is like demanding that Christians be perfect. It automatically creates this feeling of inadequacy in us. It breeds a hopelessness that we could ever be like him. And so Daniel's cordoned off as this unattainable saint whom we all admire but of whom we are all jealous. But be like Daniel is not the point of this story. Daniel's not intended to be our goal, but rather the person through whom we look and see Jesus and discover that it's Jesus who makes Daniel and all the saints blameless. Daniel's life is an echo of the life of Jesus, so that as we read about Daniel, our minds should naturally begin to wander to Jesus and our hearts should fill with hope because it's in Jesus that Daniel stands. It's in Jesus that he's blameless. He is a sinner made blameless through faith in Jesus, just like you and I are. He's not an alien, but our brother. Our hope runs through Daniel to Jesus, so that in Jesus we can see that we're not too unlike Daniel after all. 
And the story is written in such a way to, to draw our minds, to, to accomplish this effect, to draw our minds beyond Daniel to Jesus. Rarely do I ever wish I had a screen behind me to put up PowerPoint slides for you, but this is one of those rare moments because it's powerful to be able to make visible for you the many parallels between the trial of Daniel in our story this morning and the trial of Jesus at the end of his life. The similarities between their two stories begin with the cause for the contention that eventually led to their deaths. Both Daniel and Jesus were making claims to a kingdom. The text tells us in verse 3 that Darius planned to appoint Daniel over the whole kingdom. But this made Daniel's fellow high officials and governors jealous of him. They feared losing their power, so they attempted to get rid of Daniel. In verse 5, they realized that they had no legal grounds to accuse him because Daniel had, had not broken any laws. So they had to make their contention religious in nature. They had to make Daniel's faithfulness his fault. And so they tricked and pressured the person with the legal power to actually convict Daniel into sentencing him to death. And so he was thrown to the lions. And up to this point, the echoes of Jesus' story are eerily similar. And perhaps you were hearing them as we retold Daniel's story up to this point. But like Daniel, Jesus was making a claim to a kingdom. Matthew 4 tells us that from the beginning of his public ministry, he was calling people to repentance because the kingdom of heaven had come near. The king had come. And the people, both those who loved him and those who hated him, understood that he was claiming to be a king. On Palm Sunday, those who loved him escorted him into Jerusalem as one would welcome a king. And they shouted, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord, the king of Israel. And those who hated him knew that this was the claim he was making as well because they crucified him with a sign above his head that mockingly declared him to be the king of the Jews. It was this claim that made the religious leaders jealous and feel threatened. They feared losing their power, so they attempted to get rid of Jesus. But quickly they realized they had no legal ground to accuse him because he'd not broken any laws. Both Pilate and Herod examined him, but neither found any basis for a charge against him. So the religious leaders made faithfulness his fault. They scoffed at his claims to be the son of God, tearing at their beards and ripping their clothes. And so they pressured the people with the legal power to actually convict Jesus into sentencing him to death. And so he was stripped naked and flogged and sent away to be crucified. And both Jesus and Daniel were put into graves. And verse 17 tells us that Daniel too, like Jesus, had a stone rolled in front of the entrance and it was sealed shut. And at this point, while they're in their stone graves, their stories continue to parallel one another. But Jesus' story is shown to be the template that Daniel's story is following in form, but not in power. They were both put into stone graves, but only one died. Daniel should have died, but he was spared. God sent an angel to shut the mouths of the lions. And it wasn't that these big cats weren't hungry. Because when Daniel's opponents were thrown to the lions in an act of justice, in verse 24, the text tells us that they, over, they overpowered them and broke all their bones in pieces. It wasn't that they weren't hungry. But it was that God spared Daniel from them by shutting their mouths. 
And so Daniel was drawn up out of the grave. And it was discovered in verse 23 that no kind of harm was found on him. His story followed the pattern of death and resurrection. But Daniel, but Jesus was the only one who died. Daniel died and was resurrected in form and illusion, but not in reality. But God did not intervene in the death of Jesus. In fact, Jesus called out to God from the cross and his cries were met with silence. Jesus was allowed to die. The lions overpowered him and his flesh was torn to pieces on the cross. He descended into the grave where he actually lay lifeless behind the stone that sealed the entrance. And after three days, he actually was powerfully resurrected to life again. And unlike Daniel who had no kind of harm found on him, Jesus had the scars to prove that his death was real and his resurrected body is like ours, but victorious and incorruptible now. He was raised from death to life. And his resurrection spelled doom for his enemies, just as it did for Daniel's accusers in our story this morning. Jesus triumphed over his enemies when he rose from the dead because his enemies were sin and death. He was not opposed to the Jews or the Romans. In fact, he prayed for them with some of his final breaths. Jesus was opposed to the thing that afflicted them and us. Sin and the product of sin, which is death. These are the things he conquered. Jesus offers forgiveness from sin through his death and freedom from the fear of death through his resurrection. In all things, he's triumphant, just like Daniel. But again, their stories diverge at this point. Because Daniel was acting only for himself, whereas Jesus acted for the sake of any who love and trust him. Daniel's faithfulness under trial was not efficient for anyone else. No one could point to Daniel and say, he did that for me. But Jesus' faithfulness under trial, his once for all sacrifice on the cross and his resurrection from the dead was efficient for any who entrust themselves to him in faith. In other words, we can look at Jesus and say, he did that for me. He offers everyone who comes to him in faith his perfection, his forgiveness, and his victory over death and sin. We are sinful and guilty and deserving of death, but we're loved by Jesus nonetheless. He accepts us into himself as we are so that we now live and move and have our being in him. And he has sent the Holy Spirit to us so that his perfection and holiness might grow in us and our lives might come to mirror his, us in him and him in us. Which brings us back to Daniel. Because in Daniel, we meet a man whose life has come to mirror Jesus. In Daniel, we see not someone to aspire to in our own strength, but we see the result of the Holy Spirit's work in us. He's making our lives to mirror Jesus' life just as he did for Daniel. He's making us bold so that we can stand in front of a law that says, you shall not or you shall be thrown in the lion's den and say, I'm going to do it anyway. He's making us perfect. He's making us righteous and holy. 
But the thing not to miss about Daniel's life as it mirrors Jesus' life is that Daniel suffered just as Jesus did. And if we are to be a reflection of Jesus, then we can expect to suffer as well. But the gospel, the, the good news is that Jesus has redeemed the experience of suffering by turning it into the means of salvation for us. The way to freedom and forgiveness leads through the cross. And the Holy Spirit is constantly pressing us to go there and to put to death those things in our lives that don't match the holiness and purity of Jesus Christ in us so that we might more truly reflect our life in him. And so the cross is calling your name and the Holy Spirit is nudging you forward as he makes you more like Jesus. And the way for us to respond to this work of the Holy Spirit within us is to participate with him in the work of dying so that we might live like Jesus and our lives might reflect his. And we do this by acknowledging our sins, by asking for forgiveness from those we've offended, by fasting and discovering what it, what it is that makes you angry by practicing silence in order to realize that your thoughts, which you typically block out, are unholy. By reading scripture until this gospel pattern of death and resurrection becomes your expectation and supplants the American dream of comfort and ease in your hearts. By coming to church faithfully in order to remind yourself that the Christian life is not a solitary endeavor, but that there are redeemed sinners all around you by praying, sending your words into the air like a crazy person who's talking to themselves, but trusting that it's the most sane thing to do because those words are landing in the ear of a God who loves you and lives for you. With our cooperation, the Holy Spirit is making us not only like Daniel, but like Jesus. Until one day we shall know fully his victory over sin and death and forever sing Darius's song. He is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed and his dominion has no end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. For he has saved me from the power of the lions. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.